Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. All right, looks like we are live and being recorded. Phenomenal. So thank you everyone for joining the live stream. We have Ty Spano with us. Ty is currently the CISO at Vercel, but this is not his first rodeo. He's been a multi-time CISO, been in security for a very, very long time. One of the security professionals I respect very, very highly. And Ty, thank you for joining this uh, session. And I'm looking forward to discussing all kinds of things with you today. Same here. I uh, really appreciate you setting this up and actually having time to sit down and chat. I know you're a very busy man uh, building all the good things at Tromso, but AppSec is not an easy space and we need strong leaders like yourself helping the industry. That's phenomenal. Thank you so much. And so one of the reasons why uh, I really wanted to have this conversation with you is because you have spent a lot of time. You're one of the one of the security leaders who spent more than a decade focused on AppSec and related things. Um, and I think that also gives some perspective, right? We were talking about this earlier before the streaming, which is um, you started your career way back when, and things have changed a little bit uh, since yep. then. Uh, and now you're at a company that is powering modern development, modern software. So maybe it'll be helpful before we get into how security, like what the security specific things we're talking about, let's talk about the the undertone of what is actually changing security. Why do we need to do something different? Why are we already doing something different in terms of how is development changing? How has it changed over the past few years and what implications that has? I think it'll be useful to understand some of those things. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great tone. So I'm, I'm coming up on two decades in, in the industry, if I include all of my full-time work in college, but in, in reality, it's like, it's a lot of time in software security. And as a CISO that's built on app and product security, I think it's helped enable me much faster to become a CISO. Now I took my time to get here, took my time to like build and actually have a real strong foundation. Um, I think I was a practitioner as an AppSec person, director, senior director, manager, all those things throughout the years. And I've only been a CISO now currently 2.5 times is what I'll say. And that's for five years of it. So in the grand scheme of that, like 13, 14 year period, it was all AppSec. Um, what's changed? Oh, I wish more in all honesty. I think I wish more has changed, but that's that's why I've joined Vercel is as a front end cloud and then people using uh, actual things like React framework or like Next.js, Svelte, like there's different frameworks that allow us to build security in. And this is something we talked about very early on in the security days, but like not everyone latched onto this idea. And I think a lot of your average, you know, app plus sec professionals end up being scanner jockeys, which I think is a really dangerous way to approach security. You know, I yeah. rely on a scanner to have an output. And I, I think that's partially true today, but what's really changed for me uh, outside of testing, pen testing, being componditized, uh, having more tools and more startups in the space, uh, folks like us having a chance to, you know, do some really cool work is that 
it's no longer ostracized. So having hacker powered security is actually one of the bigger changes that I've observed. Uh, so seeing bug bounties emerge as a real thing, as opposed to, hey, Ty, we got this dude that's telling us on the internet that he could hack us and he sent us this video. What should we do? Oh, wait, he posted it on YouTube. Should we be worried? And like, you have to unpack those things with a C-level title and an organization go, look, there's no way to know what the timestamp is, what location they're in, like how they're doing this attack and what they show on the screen. It's like all that could be manipulated. And if we have no log or trace, like shoulder shrug, not much to do. Let's keep moving. Now we have platforms to reward good, responsible disclosure, as opposed to, I remember early days, people tried to help. And our hacker community is a mixed mixed ground, black hat, white hat, gray hats, someday white hat appearing to be white, but actually black hat behind because they'll sell the same vulnerability to two different governments or regimes, right? But when I think of how operationally we as practitioners can partner with folks all around the world, that is really wild to me. So I think how we build security into programs and how we take feedback from customers, it has changed. So I think that if I could use one word, it's transparency. We're no longer secretive about security. We're actually opening it up and talking about it. Open source has allowed a lot of that too, to continue to emerge into the forefront of the way we think of software security. But for me, I think we're just finding a better way of communicating and enabling security. So that's the part I'm excited by. The other parts I'm not so excited by, but it's always going to be a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, I love that theme of transparency, especially because... Now, there's also, I mean, there's a very well-known trend that first-party code written by in-house developers is reducing significantly, whereas third-party code is dependencies and so on and so forth. That is a higher percentage of the code being written, and who knows what's going to happen with AI. Yeah, we got six minutes before the first AI mention. Um, <laughs> That's on you. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it, it definitely is going to change right over a period of time. So, which then means that most of the security efforts that used to be relevant 10 years ago, primarily geared towards securing first party code, will no, wrong, no longer be efficient, effective enough uh, as we go further down, right? And we've already seen that with massive adoption of SCA tools and container scanning tools and all of those things, um, SBOMs becoming more and more centerpiece of the conversations. Uh, so the industry is definitely going in that direction. On the flip side of it, I think it's a good thing as well, because then the, 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 the task shifts away from trying to figure out how to fix every single real vulnerability to using safe and secure frameworks, right? And right. Vercel is, is one of those players in the space that is building this native secure by default frameworks and components. So in a way, developers' jobs is also sort of getting easier if you start using the secure by default frameworks and you can get to eliminate a lot of class of bugs, right? What's your thought on that direction? I'm so excited to eliminate all sorts of foundational bugs in the OWASP top 10 for engineers. You know, I, I, I rue the day and I rue like all the things. The experiences were great, but having to explain someone to validate their inputs you know, why don't we trust third party inputs or a customer input or an integration input or the mainframe input? You know, having those types of conversations, I think, is starting to dissipate. Uh, SQL injection is a whole class that, you know, like our team just launched storage products last week and we got some feedback. Oh, this is vulnerable to SQL injection. It's not using parameterized queries. We're like, 
none of that is feasible based on the design of serverless and how this actually executes. Um, so it's interesting to watch some of our partners in this conversation, our CTO, uh, you know, and we are rolling through and having, I think, very open, transparent chats about like, that's cool. We'll take, we'll take the feedback. Obviously there's more education to be done. Um, so again, I think it goes back to the transparency piece. There's not a lot to hide here. And when I think of your narrative of first to third party code, like, and it's always been that way. I just feel most people are waking up to the fact that, oh my goodness, we actually have dependencies. So 10 years ago, when I was at Capital One, uh, we built a really amazing program. I thought we were behind constantly, but that was the message I portrayed inside the organization. It allowed me to get a lot of traction. Once I left Capital One, I will say, I was surprised how far ahead we were. And I'm confident that that team has done a lot of good work in the, you know, the scaled world of how many apps you have to have and manage and how many marketing teams you're supporting with so many humans around the world. But one of the questions I used to pose when I when I gave this talk called uh, Fast, Furious, and Secure was how many people have third-party libraries in their code or is it everything just developed in-house? And when I sat in a room or I was standing in the room talking and I only saw like one or two hands go up, I go, the rest of you are either lying to yourself or you just don't know how much third-party code is in your actual software. And they're like, no, no, we develop it all in-house. I'm like, sure, tell me every engineer that you know is gonna write their own logging framework. Log4j is definitely in your code base. And it for me, I think as we've, we've grown forward in the community, we've seen it. Marshall, the past two years, the amount of software supply chain vendors that are popping up left and right. And I've always found this, this, this space to be very interesting. And I think about the players I've worked with and how some of them make it for a couple of years, but we're seeing even more intelligence and software componentry. Uh, the early days was, hey, let's fingerprint. Cool, we have a fingerprint. We know this is a known vulnerable component. Let's flag it. Let's let the team deal with it. And that was, it was a start. It wasn't good, right? It's just like saying, my scanner said this thing. There was no real triage. And I think for us, we always have to make sure we're telling the truth and giving a quality service. So when an engineer takes something, they don't have to say, what you gave me is not real. And I remember the early days, even static analysis, like I got a lot of that feedback of like, this isn't a real vulnerability. And I'm like, I never called it a vulnerability. It's a software flaw flagged by the tool, but I need your help to unpack it because I can't, I can't get the trace. I can't get the trace of where's the source and where's the sink. You know, where, where's the starting point of this data and where does it get stored? And then who's using it down? I don't have access to all the source code. So please help me get to that next step. I think that what we're seeing now is a lot better intelligence in software supply chain where it's not just the fingerprint. That's the start. Well, now let's look at the call. Let's look at the function. Is the function even there or is it code commented out? Because it's like we no longer use this component. It is deprecated, you know, and there's a bang there with the comment and no one reads it. But in reality, you have a lot of this technology that's going a step further to empower that engineer or that security personnel to have a better conversation. So I'm excited about what I've seen in the past two years that it is changing. Uh, now with the plus plus of AI and learning models, look, even for a company like ours, you know, Next.js is our open source uh, you know, project by our founder, Guillermo Rauch. Uh, we have a lot of open source players in our shop that are constantly contributing. And it's uh, one of the nuances that makes my job unique. I'll just put it that way. When I think of what we want is we want our open source in those learning models. 
we want to enable how to build websites through AI. So I think that's been a very interesting conversation and effort in the past couple of months for us, but we are seeing a massive change and then expectation for adoption is at an all-time high. So I, I think we're all very excited about the work we're going to get to do next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's totally true. I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, more technical knowledge uh, that's coming from the security tools that help developers. But also, I do truly believe that developers are getting more and more um, uh, in, 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 they're becoming more accept, uh, accepting of security. And one indicator that I usually use is uh, a lot of the traditional dev tool companies like GitHub and GitLab and JFrog and all of those platforms are also going after security features and capabilities. Maybe that's because people are spending money in security and they just want that budget. But that what that does is it makes security a you know a first class citizen sort of you know of the developer workflows and developer ecosystem. So it becomes a core part of their mindset of what they think about all great signals that has happened in the past few years. Um, the the sort of the other uh, challenge of this ecosystem all coming together uh, that I'm also observing is when developers are uh, operating in a more modern, modern fashion, they also don't own just the code pieces, right? They also own the artifacts that are built out of it. They also deploy those artifacts in the cloud. In some cases, they also manage the cloud platforms themselves. So back in the day when developers' job was to only write code and every there will be other teams who will take care of you know QA and testing and deployment and releases, all of that stuff was not their yeah. job. Yeah. But now developers are responsible for many more steps than just writing code, which then indirectly means that when security teams find out about issues across these different layers of the stack, it's going back to the same developer. The same developer then has to understand not just issues related to the code that she wrote or in the dependencies, but also about your Terraform issues and container issues and you know opening an S3 bucket and you know authentication authorization, all of those issues go back to the same developer and now you have a developer who's complaining about too much noise from security or too many things from security. Just tell me what do I need to do? Yeah. Uh, have you seen that pattern? For sure. I mean, you know, I think I don't want to gush continuously over what we're doing at Vercel, but when I think of the average engineering team, like even, even in my past past, um, you know, deploying a technology like AppArmor into Kubernetes uh, that is going to control your read writes to your file system. Um, when an engineer doesn't understand functionally how it does a container work, they're not going to understand what a breaking out of a container does. So that when it comes to, hey, we're making a change, we're integrating, you know, when SageMaker was a thing initially, and now it's still a thing. But, you know, when it first emerged, no one knew what to do with it. But as, as teams were trying to integrate and engineers were trying to understand what do we need to do to make this work? I watched engineers start flipping, you know, bits and bytes, reads and writes, and trying to just say, I think I got it to work. And then I would come in and say, all right, I'm just going to ask a very simple question. Why did you change all these permissions? They're like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I just had to figure out a way to get it to work. And I'm like, fair enough. Let's review all of the paths and all of the parent and child directories. And it's it's something you have to be there with the team, because I think even, even as technical practitioners in the security space, you still have to work with the engineer to understand it yourself. And that takes time. So I think as long as you're trying with the teams, it, it allows for a better experience at the end of the day. But if you tell them, hey, here's the vulnerability, our pen test says this, fix it. That's not enough. 
there's no empathy there. Like you, you have to know that you're all striving for a quality product and security is just a subset of quality. So how do you ensure it as a team to get it out the door? And I think that's where, you know, every practitioner has their own way and their own technical experiences. But I think if you're not working with your engineer to get through some of those challenges or like they throw their hands up, they have no partner, there's no one to assist them with it, just showing up, showing up to the meeting, figuring out what the config is, understanding the terraform like if you do it together it just makes a much much better experience or if you find the right people to do it together with then it gets better and better but like as an individual that that has been my secret just be present and the more present you are in those discussions the greater things you can accomplish together yeah yeah i 100 agree with that uh the way of thinking the challenge that i felt personally is how do you do this when you have a ratio of one security person to 200 developers, right? And, and the reason that becomes excruciatingly painful is because if you're a security person, uh, if you're an AppSec engineer, product security engineer, whatever, yep. uh, there's no way for you to be able to understand that some developer flipped some bits and changed permissions and created directories, right? And yep. if that individual even did that, how do you know that is just a hackathon project that will never get deployed. It's not even a customer facing thing. It's just an internal, you know, lunch coordination schedule app versus yep. something that's going out to the field. Customers are going to use it, potentially process confidential data in production. So as a security person, it's really, really hard to understand what is the risk profile of different things that are actually changing where every security alert looks the same. Yep. Um, and on the other hand, it's a double-sided problem. On the other hand, when you're a developer, you don't really understand, as you mentioned, as a, a developer doesn't always understand the security implications of doing certain things. It's like, oh, it's just, I'm just opening up an S3 bucket, right? It has a long, you, you know, long URL to be able to access it and whatnot. It's, nobody can find it. But the developers are busy with doing so many different things. They don't understand the security implications, which can be quite nuanced in a lot of times. And the security person doesn't understand what's actually happening, what's the risk profile. So bridging those gaps, I, I hear what you're saying, which is you have to be present, but how do you actually do it in real life? Yeah, you got to supplement with the right tools and technology. I want to go back to your initial statement of one security person for 200 engineers. I don't love that ratio. I think that's a really hard ratio to support. Uh, I prefer one AppSec person per hundred. And I think that's an old metric. I think it scales okay. It's not the best. I, I think if you have a better full-fledged team of security practitioners that can help engineers across the board, great. But software security focus, uh, you know, I'm I'm really leaning into like even one to a hundred is tough. And depending on what you're building and the product and how you ship. Um, I think you as the CISO need to make that effective decision and measurements to determine what is reasonable because that person, I think we all have a Rolodex capacity of 200 total names that we can retain of human beings in one time, right? So if you're asking someone to do that with uh, developers plus code plus changes, yeah, it's going to be hard. But to me, this is where the supplement of tools like, you know, attack service management. So that S3 bucks, it, you don't have to stress as much it, as long as you have some way of monitoring what is your attack service? What are those configuration changes? Uh, you have some Terraform scripts that are going through and actually analyzing what are in the Terraforms. Did someone change the gold image? And this has been the same talking point for over 10 years for me. It's like, it's not scary, especially if you start from a place of trust. Now, once you have deviations, then yeah, that's when you lean in. 
for me, it's all about intelligent triggers. At what point should I have to step in and have that conversation? And when I think back to a lot of application security journeys, and even like legit, like the first time we met, uh, you were presenting on Medallia's, you know, application security program. And that was the day I knew, ah, this is one of my people. And it's been cool to see you take all of that experience and put it into Tromso to help the rest of the industry. But the way I look at it is the way you look at it. We can't be everywhere and everything and every change. It's impossible. So we have to be intelligent about what is the risk of each app? How much do we care about every app? And then at a certain point, well, I trust that team. You know, they're, they're grade A. They've been minted. They do all the testing. They've integrated, uh, you know, all the QA rules that we wanted to build in for conformance. So if there's drift, we actually have triggers once again to say, oh, no, we have alerts if they touch a special secret or a permission or they, you know, increase their permissions to get into production and they take over a specific account. We get those alerts. But I think you build that trust with the teams. Now, not everyone is always going to be on that same journey and trust is always not going to be at a top tier A rank but it's going to go ebbs and flows. And you as a business, I think that's part of your job as a CISO, as a security practitioner is to communicate. Where are we at in this journey of trust? Hey, I'm losing trust because we had three incidents based on secrets leaking, based on S3 buckets being exposed. And then we figure out how do we coach? How do we get better? How do we address it and not let it happen again? But I think that's that's the abstract of how we operate it is just relational management. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think a lot of that, I 100% agree, uh, there's going to be teams that you trust and there's going to be teams that fortunately, unfortunately, because of whatever reasons, will be repeat offenders uh, in, in, from a security compliance privacy perspective. Um, but it, it, the, the underlying hypothesis is that, okay, uh, and, uh, everything goes back to the the team or the trust in the team or the individuals that are making those choices and decisions. And one of the big challenges that I see all the time is you have these uh, relationships with people in the dev team, engineering team. How do you know who owns what? Like, how do you know what are they actually working on? How do you know what are the artifacts and the assets that belong to them? When you see certain issue come up or when you see certain questionable change, how do you attribute it back to well, is this related to this particular team I trust or I don't trust? Or, you know, it's in, should you do something about it? And who should you talk to? That's a tough one. And I, I wish I had the blueprint of how it's just worked. And in fact, it's it's always based on context, engineering managers. But I think one of the key teams is your SRE or your stability or your platform team. And how does incident management work? And for me, that that is such a key indicator of who owns code or how are they taking accountability for what they ship? Or do they just ship some, you know, not great code, watch it fail in production, and then they let this team clean it up and stay the experts in their company? I've seen this time and time again, and it just seems like it's factors at almost every startup. You have that kind of key one to three engineers that know everything. And then you have a lot of other engineers that are trying to do good, but they're they're also contrasting in levels of trust with the SRE team. Um, so as you break that down, for me, it goes back and trying to partner to reduce the harm, right? Like how much are we harming our people by having incidents and constant chaos? Or have we addressed what is the root cause? Okay, so bad code is shipping and we didn't do this test case, or we just didn't even think about building a test case as part of writing code. And for me, that is like table stakes. So as we ship things, how confident 
are we that it's going to work when we deploy? And then how confident are we going to maintain this thing if it doesn't work? Or again, go back to the other side and say, well, the SRE team will handle it. If there's no empathy between those sets of engineers, I have grave concerns, but I've I've been through this many times. And that's part of like where you get your EQ to understand who owns what. And if there is no clear lines of ownership, I think that's part of security's job is to, again, elevate that narrative of why are we having incidents? What is the root cause? What is the postmortem? Did we improve or not? If that's quarterly, great. If that's annually, maybe it's a little bit too long of drift, but likely this is in real time with the leadership team of constantly abstracting back to say, are we getting better or are we getting worse? Yeah. Yeah. I think there was uh, a fantastic nugget that you shared in this uh um, in this conversation, which is go back to SRE. Typically, every engineer, the first thing, even if they don't care about security, which um, obviously shouldn't happen, but they will care if their code works or not. And uh, SRE teams will typically know who owns that service, whether it's in somebody's mind or it's uh, institutionalized in some sort of system. That's a different aspect, but at least security can leverage a lot of that brain trust from the SRE teams. They would know. Sure. Also, hey, you can ask them point blank, who do you not trust and why <laughs> versus who do you trust? Because like if if you're starting a champions program, who do you trust coming from the SRE team is like, well, they trust them. That is an easy, easy step to like, let's let's educate a little bit more. Let's empower. Let's give them more visibility, access to our team. But let's let's collaborate with that person. And if they're already trusted and in high regard, things just get better because those are the folks that everyone's like, well, how do I get to be in that position with the SRE team? It's like, well, ship good code and then don't don't make their lives miserable every day, every weekend, every night, every release. Like, think about us as a whole team, a whole crew on one ship moving in one direction. And you can't just let it, you know, happen to be that no one cares about the back of the ship because you're up in the front row, you know? Like, I think yeah. it has to be very conscientious of like, what is a team and what is it that you're doing? Right, right. Yeah. And I want to go back to the earlier point that you mentioned, which is when you have all of this information, you share with them, uh, share data with them about, are we, do, are we getting any better? Are we getting worse? So in the last few minutes of this, uh, of this uh, conversation, do you have any things that you typically share with your peers in engineering or development in terms of communicating this idea? Are we getting better or worse? Um, what have you seen work? Yeah, so I think it's just continual communication. I think you have to understand as a CISO or a director of AppSec or AppSec leader, or, you know, wherever you're at in the stack, it's how are you empowering the next? And then how are you empowering your peers? Um, to me, thinking about the limited time and the limited scope we have with individuals, I try to make it a purpose of having key one ones, but also hiring the right people to have the same messages that we're, we're portraying out there. For me, I think strategically in the way of like, what is it that we're working on? Where are we investing our security dollars? Is it the right technology or should we be investing in training and educating people constantly? I don't know. But to me, that's the conversation. So every six months is my current approach. Uh, we sit down, we look at our roadmap, we say, here's where we're going. Here's what we're shipping. Here's why we're doing it. Let us know if you think differently, but here's our inspiration. This incident, that incident, these three incidents bucketed together, and we want to avoid creating that harm. And for me, I think that's been one of my you know, super secrets is that when I go look out into the world of pain, 
when I look at trauma, when I look at people that care about the company and what they're doing, and they're not just there for a paycheck, how do I protect them? How do I better defend this world around them and create resiliency so then we can actually really enjoy what we're doing and ship a great product? But it's not an overnight experience. It's not even a one-year experience. And I think that's where you know it's tough for CISOs because if you're only there for two years, it's unlikely you're going to reach that journey of that outcome where you really wanted to see this vision come true. And I think for those that you know like to work really fast, I get it. Trust me. I've been trying to do fast in every shop and every place and every company I've been in, but it is hard to go fast without conscientious thoughtfulness around how you're building forward. So I think when you build it that way with the thought of empathy first, you actually have great outcomes, but empathy comes at the the price of like, I have to make a logical improvement and then I showcase the improvement. And then we don't hear about that issue anymore. You know, like the people that are having exposed S3 buckets, I would be shocked if that's still the case today. Like it would take a, a real hard act for someone to be like, hey, I'm just dumping this open bucket with all this customer information out in the world. I would be shocked if shops are still suffering from that. If I, if they are, they've probably not invested correctly, but think about the pain on the back end with your legal team, with the notifications, with the exec team. So again, you as the CISO, you as the practitioner, I think you have to determine what is the cadence and what is the content of that communication. And then you will have a quality experience based on how you approach that. Phenomenal. Ty, it was uh, an awesome conversation. Thank you for sharing such uh, uh, all throughout your experience, all the insights that you've learned. This is a great conversation. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Harshal. Always a pleasure to chat. Looking forward to the next one. All right. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.